Welcome to the AFIRE podcast. Beyond the immediate and very concerning issues of COVID-19, global recession, and civil unrest, there is a fundamental long-term shift occurring right now in the residential markets as baby boomers and millennials age into a new phase in their lives. I asked Anthony Kazazian, the head of U.S. residential real estate at Man Global Private Markets, to help explain the demographic forces that are at play right now. Thank you, Kaz, for joining me on the A-Fire podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Excited to talk about U.S. housing, which is a topic we are certainly passionate about and have been investing in since 2012. You and your colleague, Rolf Jack Lee, wrote a, a wonderful article in the August issue of A-Fire Summit with uh, perhaps the best title this year, OK Boomer, Single Family Rentals and the New Generation. Maybe we should start with a discussion around how you think millennials and potentially Gen Z are, are different from the boomer generation and how will those differences likely play out? Sure. I think it's a great place to start. Um, at a very macro level, uh, and, and I was, by the way, born in 1981, so I, I sit on the cusp of uh, two generations. And so... Uh, at some points, I'll probably be speaking from my perspective as a millennial and then and then others uh, in, in a different manner. But at a very macro level, millennials are larger than the boomer generation and have entered or are entering the home building phase of their lives. Those are some very obvious macro level points I'm making, but uh, will drive a lot of our discussion today. Um, beyond that, sort of technology, connectivity, the need for flexibility and mobility um, and experiencing, frankly, the great financial crisis early in their lives have all shaped the generation in very meaningful ways. And these factors have and will continue to impact uh, ultimately housing and rental demand in different ways. Um, I'll highlight maybe one such example uh, is, is frankly the view of ownership versus rentership of assets in general. Um, as a result uh, of a need for greater flexibility and mobility, a desire to have the latest and greatest products, um, and, and in a way getting less satisfaction from do-it-yourself projects, you know, millennials are much more open to the renting of assets than the owning of assets. And I'll, I'll, I'll use a simple example um, outside of housing. Take leasing a car, for example. Uh, I personally lease a car because I want the latest and greatest technology. I want the flexibility of changing cars every three or so years. Uh, I don't want to deal with issues that older cars face. Um, and in addition, I don't feel any negative social views uh, from leasing a car. Uh, and, and this has driven leasing you know, numbers to record highs over the past several years. The same analogy can be applied to renting homes, um, albeit I think we are in the earlier years of, of sort of that, that social you know, transformation. You know, as renting a home becomes more common, the stigma around not owning your home continues to decline, and it offers the benefit of flexibility, mobility, change, 
the avoidance of having to maintain a home that you own or, or do it yourself projects, etc. Um, and so the, the generation, um, you know, the, the millennial generation as a result of all of these factors are much more open to uh, becoming renters and are driving rental demand. Does that mean then that millennials are fundamentally different in their behaviors from the generations before? Yeah, I think um, it's not that the millennials are that different than the boomers in the sense of um, major milestones in life. So, um, you know, most will still look to get married. Most will still look to have children. Most will at some point um, in their lives likely own a home. Um, myself, for example, I owned a home, I, I rented, I then owned a home and I'm back to renting again. So we talk a lot uh, about how the millennials are entering into those years where they're expanding their families, where they're, you know, they're about to enter some of their peak earning years. And there's a lot of assumptions that all of them are going to move to the suburbs as the boomers did at that point. How do you think things will change over the next 10 years with this group? Yeah, we have certainly seen a delay of major milestones um, as it relates, you know, to the millennial generation relative to prior generations, whether that be getting married later, having children later, or owning a home later in life. Um, and I think we are now starting to see that sort of shift um, back to some historical norms. Uh, I'll point to, you know, some factors, for example, you know, U.S. Uh, housing ownership uh, dropped to 50 plus year lows several years back. Today, uh, and this isn't just driven by demographics, but also by you know historically low mortgage rates and some other factors. But today, U.S. home ownership is in line with historical uh, averages. Um, so we'll, we'll, we will see demand, I think, for U.S. housing in general, frankly, whether that be through ownership or through rentership, um, continue to increase over time as the population grows and as the largest generation comes into these major milestone years. Uh, we are certainly seeing it on the rental side uh, across our portfolio. You know, we own 4,000 single-family rental homes across 17 markets in the U.S., and we are certainly seeing sort of this demand uh, and need for more space, more bedrooms, um, you know, good school districts in, in low crime areas um, and safe neighborhoods from the millennial generation that is coming into their household formation years. And I, I think that is true across the board for U.S. housing in general. Well, your article also suggests that that supply is not keeping up with current and expected demand. And, and it seems like that's been going on for a while. How do you think that's going to impact uh, the market going forward? Inventory today of existing homes is at 40 plus year lows. And so there truly is um, kind of a shortage of housing stock uh, in the country, particularly at the more kind of affordable um, levels. Uh, and you are seeing that result in uh, increasing prices. Um, just, uh, just out a few days ago, uh, median home sales prices in the US hit record levels just north of $300,000. Um, and we, you know, given uh, housing permits remain at or below historical averages, 
we see this continuing uh, to be, you know, a somewhat of an issue longer term um, as demand continues to increase, as we've discussed, uh, partly driven by demographics with millennials uh, and the supply kind of continues to remain uh, short. Uh, and, and so what does that what does that mean? What are some other trends that come out of that? Uh, as we are seeing it on the on the rental side, sort of a desire for additional rental product, newer rental product um, that offers the flexibility uh, and uh, you know and, and modern features of a new home. And so a lot of our focus as we've uh, invested in the asset class has been on newer product uh, across uh, markets that have attracted. Um, you know, the millennial generation and others, uh, you know, we focus a lot in the south uh, of the U.S. where there's a lot of population growth and, and employment growth and wage growth. Um, and we do that through a variety of, of, of means, including uh, building uh, rental communities, um, purpose-built rental communities um, with homes uh, that, that are meeting some of the demand uh, that's out there. A few years ago, Hans Nordby, who's now with Lionstone, observed that the working age population seems to be flattening in the U.S., especially as immigration is to some extent being constrained. At the same time, you know, boomers are retiring in greater numbers, as you would expect at this point. Uh, what what do you think that is doing to the whole housing rental demand picture? Uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, ultimately, population is growing in our country, and we all, um, you know, need and, and and hopefully can have a roof over our heads. Uh, and so, I think ultimately, demand continues to increase in the face of uh, short inventory, as kind of we just discussed, um, but. As, as boomers retire, you know, that actually has presented um, sort of a, an additional trend. Uh, what we're seeing there is frankly a, um, a, again, as that stigma of owning versus leasing an asset in general or a home changes over time and, and renting becomes more commonplace, what we're seeing on the boomer side as they retire is a desire to downsize uh, from their, you know, family homes into something uh, smaller, more manageable, maybe something that someone else takes care of. Maybe it's in a new market, a warmer market. Um, and, you know, they're very happy to to rent a home. So we're, we're actually seeing demand driven by multiple trends across the different generations uh, for slightly different reasons. Part of what you seem to be saying is that we've got multiple trends in terms of these different generations and what they're doing. And in aggregate, you're still seeing a gap between demand and supply, whether we're talking about, you know, boomers retiring, we're talking about diminished immigration, we're talking about, um, you know, young people kind of entering their home lives is that it's not a necessarily everyone's going to move to the suburbs, everyone's going to stay in the city, but there seems to be a lot of cross current. Um, and a lot of opportunity for things to change. I, I think that's right. Um, in terms of the suburbs, it, it, it is interesting, particularly during um, you know COVID. We've certainly 
you know, the world has has seen uh, some rapid change uh, and trends that we think will continue to persist over time. They may be magnified at the current moment, uh, but we do believe some of it will be a permanent trend or shift. And uh, that is certainly driving uh, demand in the suburban areas of a lot of markets in our country. Um, the, the fact that companies and people are realizing uh, that it's it's doable and, and easy to work from home. Um, the, the fact that there may be less of a reliance of having to be in an office, uh, less of a concern around commute times to the office, a desire to uh, potentially be more socially distant or have your own space, your own backyard, that is certainly uh, driving demand for you know single family uh, housing in general uh, and that that's a you know that's applicable to both ownership and rentership uh, and we are you know on the on the on our rental portfolio side of our business you know we're seeing near record uh, occupancy levels um, rent growth levels uh, rent collection uh, by the way has also remained extremely strong uh, even though you know the country uh, is is facing a lot of challenges today um, so I, I think that trend to suburban markets certainly today is real uh, I think there are some some tailwinds produced from COVID that will continue to support uh, suburban housing. Uh, I, but you know, hard to say the permanency of these trends. As I just, I don't want to act like I have a crystal ball. So, given the incredible demand that you and others are investing in, I think this is you know a really exciting landscape. But as you look at this and as you look at risk, what are you concerned about? What could interrupt uh, what is a, you know, just a fantastic investment uh, thesis? You know, it's interesting. Given, given the macro backdrop, um, the demand that we see, the, you know, the lack of inventory, um, to be honest, we feel uh, incredibly excited um, about the opportunity. I, I'd say, frankly, from like an investor's perspective, I think investing in single-family rentals, for example, is still relatively new. You know, the institutionalization or, or the attraction of institutional capital into this investment really started uh, less than a decade ago, um, really around 2012 when we started investing in the asset class, and so. I think it's still uh, less proven. There's less of a historical track record uh, than than other asset classes, and as a result, some investors haven't spent the time to dig in or understand it yet. And I think that's it's really an opportunity that investors are are missing out on. Um, and and but is is you know from the sense of not having a histor as long of a historical track record as let's say investing in. Uh, other real estate asset classes, I think they're, you know, those are the things that we keep a, a, a keen eye on. Um, how, you know, what do margins look like? What are operating expenses? Uh, how do those trend over time? So I think separate from, you know, my concern for kind of investors um, and, and potentially, 
you know, having longer dated history of investing in the asset class. I think there's also a, like a social aspect to this for me. You know, part of the reason why I love investing in the asset class is that I feel um, like I'm actually contributing to, you know, the betterment of society by, um, you know, repairing homes and, and bringing good quality product for people to live in. Uh, and I think, frankly, speaking to the lack of inventory, um, there's, you know, my concern is if we are going to be able to over time address the affordable housing, you know, lack of affordable housing supply in this country, which I do think will become a bigger uh, and bigger issue over time. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part um, by investing in the asset class and, 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 and bringing homes and, and inventory to market um, and to renters. Uh, but this is this is a a large problem that will become larger over time. I'm heartened to hear you say those things. I think in this environment, uh, perhaps some people have even described it a toxic environment of crisis. Uh, to have investors really focused in on some of these broader issues, not just from the standpoint of of delivering the best risk-adjusted returns, is this concern about what kind of world are we living in? What kind of world um, are we supporting? As we go forward, so I'm I'm really grateful for for that response to that question. So um, we've run out of time. Uh, so I want to again thank um, uh, Anthony Kazazian for spending time with us today and uh, expanding on his article. I encourage everyone to uh, take a look at the summer issue of A Fire Summit and take a look at uh, um, Kaz's article. OK Boomer: uh, Single Family Rentals in a New Generation. So thank you, Kaz, for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And before we close out this podcast, I wanted to make sure we took some time to thank our underwriters, Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners, who make it possible for AFIRE to provide programming such as these podcasts. Thank you. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for listening.